With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Brendan Constantine. Thank you for joining me for uh, a special edition of Poetry Super Highway Live. It is my pleasure to be your guest host today and interview uh, my friend and fellow author Rick Lupert about the recent publication of his 16th collection of poems, The Gettysburg Undress. Today's special edition entitled The Gettysburg Undress, Undressed. Rick, are you with us? Yeah, I am. I it it is sixteen. I I kind of uh, I I'm glad that you know that because once I ran out of fingers, I I lost count. You've been publishing since uh, right around the time that we met. Uh, that was sometime in 1994 and 95, and you were just releasing your first uh, collection of works, Paris. It's the cheese. That. That sounds like an accurate statement. <laughs> what uh, What's interesting to note about this uh, for me is that there there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of book that you uh, seem to almost specialize in. There you have some you have some uh, you have some standalone collections which seem to the observations from where you are in the given moment uh, going through uh, the day-to-day. But my first experience of you with that first book, as with this latest book, is uh, of a traveling poet, a poet who is writing from different points on the globe, a poet who's in motion uh, and is sort of reporting with us or taking us on a trip somewhere. Have you ever been conscious of that as just a deliberate approach? Uh, is there something about travel that uh, that is more stimulating for you, or that? I mean, some folks uh, say that they prefer to write, you know, in stillness uh, and to block out hours at a time, whereas you seem to write in motion at large. It's true, you know, and it's it's something that's done very consciously, and that. That state of mind, that that state of consciousness, developed as as time went on. It wasn't something that I, I sought out to do originally. When I put out Paris, it's the cheese. I'd been involved with poetry for a while. I'd written a bunch of poetry. I'd I'd had some things published, but I came back from this trip to Paris with with a, a stack of poetry, basically. And it it occurred to me what a what a unique collection this would be if I just if I put out this work that I wrote during this experience all as its own own piece, and I didn't know that. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that that would be um, how most of my books books would uh, would turn out, but uh, 
but yeah, it's something that I, I, I definitely do consciously. I, in terms of of traveling, you know, I, I write a bunch of poetry as, as most of us do throughout the year, but there's something about being outside of my normal element. You know, there's something about uh, not being trapped in the in the mundane day-to-day stuff that that's kind of normal that heightens my senses that that heightens my observational poetic sensibility that that uh, makes so much come out during these relatively very short experiences thank you so much for uh, for tackling this question i want to thank you and i want to thank the listeners this is the kind of obligatory craft question that uh, usually leads to a dry, boring, dull answer, and you've actually managed to make it interesting. I deliberately asked it to get it out of the way. Uh, <laughs> <because> and, so, <clears throat> and so now I'm hoping we can get to the meat of the interview and possibly even discuss some things that other writers will find useful, uh, although this is possibly a, a good segue in. Uh, and since it's the perfect moment, I'm going to spoil it and actually uh, uh, throw you a throw you a, a couple of curveballs here. I was wondering if I could just ask you to go right into the book and read a couple of selections for me. I'd like, I was wondering if you would uh, set the stage for us and read the first poem in the book uh, and then jump all the way to page 15, the poem, My 15 Minutes Begins Now. Sure. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, these these trips that, that are basically archived in these books usually begin right when they begin, right when we get to the airport and and the, the, the trip ends when we when we come home. So the whole thing is kind of documented. So this very first poem was written I think when we were on the plane, it's called Early Morning Flight. I'd like to begin with a nap. My eyes have no business being open. Even the O'Clock family are still in their beds. On the plane, a boy is touching my arm. I know this boy. <laughs> and then on uh, on page 15, for the people following along at home, this is called My 15 Minutes Begin Now, also written on the plane. I sneeze super loud while walking back to my seat from the bathroom. It's so loud a large number of passengers turn to see what had just happened. At first, I'm embarrassed to be the spectacle, but then I realize all they want is more. It's finally happening for me, I think, as I pray to God or the Internet for my allergies to come back. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the reasons that I uh, that I wanted to uh, bookend these two pieces is for the reasons you stated that 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 is uh, a kind of uh, invocation. The whole first section of the book, which is titled "On the Plane," uh, you really are uh, setting us up. But there's also, it seems, uh, this kind of. I mean, that piece almost feels confessional for me, and as though you're talking about performance anxiety in a in a in a much broader sense. Uh, that there's a consciousness. Okay, my book is beginning. Uh, I've got to, I've got to attract uh, the reader with the first couple of poems, hoping that they'll, that they'll, you know, they'll be propelled through the rest of the book. But I'm also, you know, despite my best efforts, really kind of self-conscious. I'm aware of everything I do, uh, 
and uh, and quite possibly uh, that I can't control uh, the fact that I'm calculating everything for a fact. Am I making this all up, or are you with me? I'm with you. I mean, that's that's sort of the curse of being an, the artist. You know, it's it's uh, it's it, it's hard sometimes to actually experience experiences because we're all you know we're all filtering them through our own sensibility you know we're all seeing things mm-hmm. and and assessing them as we go uh and mm-hmm. it's I, I guess in the end it works out great because there's a whole a book that comes out of it but sometimes it's hard to actually you know really be in the moment when you're when you're assessing the moment artistically uh an interesting thing about what we're doing uh right now uh interviewing an author i know that uh, one of the reasons that i would that i would even listen to a program like this or or perhaps uh read certain kinds of literary criticism what have you um are to if if it's a if it's a reader that if it's a writer rather that i'm that i'm interested in, uh i sometimes find that when i'm when i'm when I'm checking out their thoughts on things, when I'm going through interviews with them and that kind of thing, I'm, uh, that there's a part of me that's looking for uh, permission, that I'm taking their example, seeing the things that they do, and <clears throat> perhaps seeing how they demonstrate things that I would like to try or things that I would want to do. And I'm hoping that um, during the course of the interview that you know perhaps we can touch on some, some aspects of craft and uh, and being a writer, uh, and the first that's coming to mind right here is is, uh, is this idea of um, something that you've that you've touched upon in this last answer uh, that when you're traveling to places and you're seeing things and things are happening to you because you're a writer, <clears throat> that perhaps there's this sense of what a good poem this will make intruding upon your ability to actually experience the thing. Is that something you struggle with? Do you find that the uh, do you have to you have to sort of quiet the poet poet voice so that you can actually experience the thing? Do you find you're you're writing the poem before an experience is half over? Sometimes. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's more it's more of a difficulty for my wife Addie to deal with because she's the one who's who's with me on these trips and and who has to pause her experience with me as I stop whatever's going on, you know, as, as I stop our progression from whatever we're doing to to write something down, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, kudos to her for for dealing with me on that. I think there's a a reference in in one of the first books that I wrote after I met her. Um, I think that was I'd like to bake your goods, the book I wrote on our honeymoon when we traveled to Europe. Uh, you know, there's a reference to where where she just says. Give me the pen, you know. Uh, kind of fed up with with the whole, uh, you know. Could we just go on and have this experience and 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 w- without you documenting the the whole thing? I mean, she she does it sort of tongue in cheek. It's it's done with love and 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 this is whole. This is really all part of the experience. And I, I'm sure if anyone who's read the book will will notice that she's a character in it. So and and a lot of mm-hmm. the, a lot of what happens in the book is me. You know, repurposing what what she has said into some kind of observation, etc. And I know that she, that she enjoys that. So, but it's it is it's 
it's true that sometimes I, I catch myself not having an experience because I'm documenting the experience. In particular, you know, when we're in museums, a, a big section of of this. Uh, uh, of, of all of these books, but in this one are written in museums, and I'm looking at paintings and making a particular observation, and I, you know, I find that I'm writing down what I'm thinking more than I'm looking at the painting sometimes. But um, that having been said, you know, I, I don't think it's it's all a loss. I, I can I could probably spend hours talking about the experiences that I've had. So uh, as, as much as I might be diminishing the experience by by writing about it on the spot. I'm I'm quite confident that I'm actually having the experience too. Um, I've uh, I had to ask if if you would uh, consider that a particularly American trait. Uh, I've heard Americans characterized as people who actually ma- manufacture things to be nostalgic about uh, and that we can't really enter into an experience without imagining on some level how much it's going to mean to us later. Uh, do you think that's an archetypically American thing, or is that a fake question? <laughs> I think it's a real question. I don't know if it's particularly American. I, you know, There's so much history, in, you know, so much more history to be nostalgic about in the rest of the world. I can't imagine uh, they, they don't have a sense of nostalgia everywhere else. Too, but I, I know that I particular, I in particular am susceptible to nostalgia. I, I remember being a senior in high school, and from the beginning of the year, you know, realizing that this experience was about to end, you know, and even you know, well, you know, in nine months <clears throat> or so, and walking around the campus and just looking at people and and the, you know, the the team jackets we were wearing and. And just feeling sad, even a, even you know a quarter into the year that this was all over, sort of you know feeling nostalgic about things that have barely happened yet, if if had, they'd happened at all. So I, well, I, I don't know if it's a yearbook committee running around, you know, perpetuating that that sense. It's like get a picture of this so we can cry about it in nine months. Yes, it's true. So again, I don't I don't know if it's particularly American, but I, I know it's particularly me to be uber nostalgic about what's what's happening. I, I mean, I, I think I, I I think I wrote a poem a while ago which which called "I Suck," which uh, yeah, I, I think absolutely. I remember. you and I might have might have read together at one point, uh, sharing lines. And there's a line it which which says, you know, I get nostalgic about things which haven't even happened yet. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you also, uh, in that vein, um, have an amazing talent uh, on the page for uh, for reminiscing with people you've never met. Um, and uh, there are a number of figures that uh, that appear throughout the throughout the book, uh, historical figures, uh, American figures. I want to hear some more poems though before I get uh, back into the dryness. I'd love. Uh, for you to take us through uh, a poem that's in sections. It appears on page 25, and it's called At the Crayola Factory. Sure, yeah, and and uh, the the title kind of gives it away, but we you know we we always start these trips in in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in, in the Lehigh Valley, and uh, where my uh, my where Addie's parents live, and they're nice enough to watch our son Jude. 
uh, for the week while we travel. So we always start out there for a couple of days and then head off. So uh, during those couple of days, we um, we do stuff. And uh, on this particular time, we went to the Crayola factory, which is such a cool thing to do. I mean, there you are where 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 they actually make the crayons that we've all been using our entire lives. So here you go, at the Crayola factory. One, at the Crayola factory, everybody gets a free crayon, which is to be expected. Two, you'd really have to like crayons to get the annual pass. No, I stand corrected. The woman at the sales desk just told me if you hated crayons with every fiber in your being, they would still sell you an annual pass. Three, there is so much to learn about crayons here, but I learned very little because I didn't apply myself. Four, everything about this experience is leading up to seeing the largest crayon in the world. Five, they have a cafe. I'll give you 64 guesses what they serve. Six, there is a whole exhibit on markers. They're really branching out. Seven, our four-year-old enters the multi-room, multi-floor playground structure. I'm pretty sure we'll never see him again. Eight, I completely misunderstood what I was supposed to do in the doodle in the dark area and am quickly asked to leave. Nine, in one area, you stand in front of an animated crayon who mimics whatever motions you make. After a short time, it becomes clear it is just mocking you. Ten, there is no explanation as to why there are sharpeners in the bathrooms. Eleven, we have twelve nights left on this trip. But after seeing the largest crayon in the world in Easton, Pennsylvania, as far as I'm concerned, this vacation is over. Twelve. We see the marketing department at work when we come across the extreme coloring exhibit. Thirteen. I wonder if there was confusion during the days of the old radio scandals and they tried to pay radio DJs in crayons to play their songs. Fourteen. Like most amusement parks, there is a special area to detain people who are misbehaving. Here they call it crayon jail. Ironically, it's the only place here they don't segregate by color. Fifteen. They sell naked juice at the cafe. This causes much giggling among the four-year-old set and their father. Thank you so much for taking us uh, through that piece. Uh, There's a couple of things that I want to talk about here. I don't know which uh, to jump in on first. Uh, first of all, though, um, I think it was poet Ron Kirti who I was aware of first uh, first asking the question, at what age do we stop coloring and why? Uh, coloring and coloring books seem something specific to childhood. And then there's this 
there's this strange invisible membrane we pass through where it's no longer appropriate. Uh, do you still color? Uh, no, not so much with crayons these days. I, you know, I, I work as a graphic designer, so I find, uh, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of artwork on the computer. Do you have to uh, the doing... line still, though? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Okay. So it was a useful skill. It, yeah, sure. I think, I think all, you know, I think the the more that people involve themselves in art as a child, the better. You know, I, I think we, we tend to lose that sensibility uh, as we get older. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, we, when we, when we have to get serious and, and, uh, and, and grow up and not do those things anymore. And it, um, and it's a shame. Yeah, and the more that we, you know, we we forget to do art as as an adult, and the more that we we remember to do that, the more we can involve ourselves in it. I think the better. My late wife, uh, Mary Catherine Byrne, was a firm believer that no matter what you did for a living, uh, wherever you worked, that on Friday, uh, just like in nursery school, you should have art. That even if you were the CEO of a major corporation, when you came into work on Friday, you would put on a little apron and you could draw or paint or work with clay or something like that, and that everybody would just, over the course of their life, uh, amass a great deal of art that they made uh, just as, as a matter of course. And, uh, you know, that uh, even at uh, 75, you, you weren't too old to be gluing dry macaroni together into the shape of a, of a house or something like that. Would you respond to something like that? I mean, if that became, or do you think that's why you have the career you have, so that you can just have art whenever you want? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, not a day goes by that I'm I'm not involved in art in some way, whether it's it's uh, poetry or graphic design work or making a broadside, or you know, for someone. So it, it seems like you know I haven't lost my opportunities to 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 be involved with creative stuff in some way so i you know it i don't necessarily have to have to seek them out and nor is it is it a kind of a foreign experience <clears throat> when it when i come across it it's it's not like i i'm uh uh you know i see crayons or something and uh, and i'm thinking uh, oh no uh, i need to or that's something i did when i was a kid you know it um it's something that keeps uh it it's just i've i've been involved with it perpetually you know howard nimerov says that uh, artists in particular poets are a touch peter panic he says that uh that to make a life of art is to some degree uh, uh a refusal to grow up all the way that uh, because art conspicuously seems to be something associated with adolescence in that the only time at which you, or or the or the time the 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 season in, in a human life at which uh, everybody uh, seems to have some experience of art is is when they're uh, a small child in school. That's the one time where everybody has to, you know, uh, where it seems appropriate for everybody to be doing these kinds of things. Everybody gets a shot at painting and and drawing and uh, and, and stenciling their hands into uh, a Thanksgiving decoration. <clears throat> I'm uh, I'm curious. How would you respond, though? I mean, would you uh, would you think it was uh, 
uh, a fool's errand to perhaps try to market uh, coloring books uh, to adults. You know, maybe specially themed coloring books that came with a pack of crayons and that you'd sell at the airport. Do you think people would, uh, if you introduced that with a sober face, that people would respond or would that just... You know, I can't imagine that it's not already, that it hasn't already happened. It, you know, it seems to me there are adult coloring books out there, you know, uh, adult in the broadest sense of of the word. Uh, I know so a few I, poets that have tried to make coloring books. You know, I believe Ellen Maybe has a lovely one, but... Um, but uh, you don't see these as necessarily uh, – you don't see anybody uh, starting a trend in, in coloring for adults. I don't know. You know, I'm still stuck on this, the nostalgia of the moment, uh, let alone okay, predicting, gotcha. predicting the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the marketing trends of the future. If anybody is listening to this program, I'm hoping uh, <clears throat> that uh, perhaps you will take this idea at the very least and go somewhere with it. Um, Please, uh, if you uh, if you get a chance, uh, color something for us, uh, scan it and and post it online, uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll try to share it with a with a wider audience. I believe Stephen Wright suggested that uh, there should be uh, there should be uh, art shows in major galleries of, of children's work, but that it should all be displayed on refrigerator doors and held up with magnets. That's a show that I would uh, go to. How about another poem? I was wondering uh, if uh, uh, to just to to just bear out uh, some of the uh, some of the arcs that occur in this book and help me segue to one of the points that I want to make about modern poetry. You would go into the book and read what feels at first almost as an inadvertent cycle. There are the poems that appear between pages 35 and 37, where you introduce an idea and then you tell us about something that happened when the poem was being written. It starts with uh, En Route to Gettysburg. There are three pieces here. Sure. Uh, En Route to Gettysburg. Towards the end of the romantic song, What I Like About You, where they're singing Hey over and over. We pass by a big sign on the side of a barn that says, Hey, I can't think of a moment more perfect than this. The song is immediately followed by Pearl Jam, alive, as if Eddie Vedder himself saw the sign too. Perfect. As I dictated the last poem to my wife, so I wouldn't drive off the road, destroy part of rural Pennsylvania and kill everyone I love when I got to the line about never experiencing a more perfect moment she interjected how about our wedding day can I just write one poem by myself on this trip I respond as I dictated the last poem to my wife while she was typing it her eyebrows were raised with a certain spousal judgment. <clears throat> okay, so you... <clears throat> uh, this is where... Uh, this is one of the moments where I'm reminded of uh, an author that you uh, that you routinely uh, hold up as an inspiration. I think of Richard Brodigan and some of the poems, uh, some of the sections, rather, of uh, Trout Fishing in America where he is... Uh, 
uh, talking about uh, traveling with uh, Virginia and his daughter, Lance, and some of the things that uh, they encounter on the way. Um, in this particular point, you know, as you said, Addie is very much a character. And uh, the whole whole sort of frame of a poem is broken here. You show us one poem, and then there are these sort of two DVD extras that uh, that follow each each a poem in themselves. Uh, can you can you comment at all on 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 this impulse in your work? You know this uh, this this kind of looking the audience in the eye as well as sort of holding the poem you've just written up and 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 uh, and inviting us to inspect it. Yeah, well, thanks for the comparison to Broad again. I you know I I think um, this whole idea of of, of of eliminating the fourth wall is really interesting to me, um, and doing things that are kind of unexpected and and jolting the reader into the poem with me by doing those kinds of things, you know, um, is 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 kind of cool to do. And and um, you talk directly to the reader at a number of points in the book, uh, you know, uh, telling us to do things or not to do things. Uh, addressing which way we're looking at a different point. Uh, all the way right to the end of the book, I don't want to give it away, perhaps you'll read the very last poem in the book later on, but you, this is something I've noticed from book to book. You know, if you're, you know, you'll, you'll stop in the middle of a poem and say, if you're still with me, and then continue. Uh, what is that? <clears throat> that, that, seems, that seems to be a very comfortable thing to do with an audience. Sure. Well, you know, I, I I like the idea of someone reading reading these poems and discovering those moments where I'm addressing them directly, and and you know helping someone who maybe isn't as familiar with poetry, uh, you know, maybe come to the the idea that oh wait this could be poetry, you know. Um, so I I think i don't know if you get this a mm-hmm. lot but but I get a lot you know sometimes people will tell me people who really aren't involved with poetry at all I don't like poetry so much, but I like your poetry you know and I think that in in crossing these lines in in expanding what what the very idea of what a poem could be um mm-hmm. it 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 helps make it more accessible to to people and it's it's not necessarily that my goal is to is to specifically be accessible but it's uh <clears throat> I, I I I'm glad that it helps bring I, I hope that it helps bring people in to into the fold you know um, and and also in, in the experience of of these books being being travel books I, I think it's cool I think it helps the reader sort of be be there more you know and experience the the experience along with me by having those kinds of things you know you and I. Uh, we do this this comic online called Cat and Banana, and uh, and a lot of the strips um, do the same kind of thing. They they uh, they refer to themselves. The, the characters in the strip are are conscious that they're in a in a comic strip. You know, there was one where they they you know said you know the cat said you know should we audition new characters? And the banana responds with something like Oh, oh sure. Let's you know. Let's start a vetting process after you're already grandfathered in, you know. Um, and someone made a comment after you know because th- that kind of thing keeps happening. That breaking down of the fourth wall. They said, "Oh well, why don't you just introduce the fourth wall as a character?" You know, um, 
I'm mm-hmm. fasc- I'm I'm fascinated by crossing that line. You know, I think it's uh, I I love the surprise. I love the the unexpectedness of it, and I love the idea of of someone experiencing that that poem. Uh, and thinking, oh wow! I didn't realize. Suddenly, I'm I'm here too. You know, I think that's kind of cool. Sometimes I find that you're able to maintain it throughout a, a collection of poems. It actually will these uh, these moments of making eye contact with the reader become their own sort of arc throughout a book because you'll 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 treat it as an aside that you've made with the reader, something that you've noticed on the side. For instance, you talk in the book. Uh, you make a reference in the Crayola factory to what it's like in the bathroom there. Then several other points in the book, you'll say, uh, I know that I've I've mentioned uh, public bathrooms before. That's just something that I do in the course of a book of poems. You do it three or four times, and there becomes this sort of wink that you're giving us throughout the book uh, every time a public restroom comes up. It's uh, it's something that we're aware of that we've been talking about from poem to poem, and and it's it's something that seems to to join the work together. I I don't know that there's so much of a question in here so much as uh, as uh, uh, just uh, kudos for the way that you're able to balance a number of conversations throughout the course of a book. One of the things that I enjoy about a book of your poems is that it is, you know, while while I can open it anywhere and land on something that satisfies or intrigues me, uh, there are multiple directions in which to read your books. I can, I can go through a book of your poems sequentially and get an extra context. I can get an extra uh, sense of something going on. Um, you know, is there... Is that something that happens organically? Uh, is it something that happened organically the first few times and now you're aware of it? Yeah, you know, I think that might have started on on the first London book, Stolen Mummies. I, I recall being, we, you know, we went to visit Buckingham Palace and sure enough in Buckingham Palace there are bathrooms you can use and, you know, just, and, and, and sure enough as a human being I, I had to use one. And But the... You know, being as we've talked about earlier, being kind of hyper aware of of the situation that I'm in, I, I suddenly realize that you know I'm I'm going to the bathroom where where kings and queens of old have have done so, and it, and it became this <laughs> whole kind of interesting you know experience, and that showed up in that book, and and you know it's uh, it's uh, so you know they they've got public bathrooms in every famous place that you've heard of and and it's just you know you just kind of imagine you're doing such a mundane human thing in this spectacular place and and it and maybe it humanizes it I, or or maybe uh, or maybe I don't know or maybe it's silly to even in include it i i think in terms of the the repetition of it you know, That's we what talked I'm interested about... in. It's not not necessarily just you know how how often you've mentioned going to public restrooms so much as having anything that you seem to be talking about almost privately with the uh, with the reader that is that is not uh, at least on the surface what the poem is about, but you'll reference something in one poem and then we see it coming up or you're winking at it several poems later. Yeah, well, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a comedy thing in there where you know you know sometimes you know a comedian will 
you know, do a whole bit about something where there's a, a repeated line or phrase or idea and everyone will laugh. And then at the end of the act, yeah. yeah, you know, at the end of the act, even though they've gone on from that bit, they'll, you know, the punchline to the new thing they're talking about will be, will be that thing from, you know, from 20 minutes ago. And it's, it just, it brings people back and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's uh it's it's funny you know so i i i do that at the at, i think it's the same i do it for the same reason i think that i break down the fourth wall you know it's uh it's that it's it's did you call it reincarnation is that the the humor term reincorporation reincorporation you introduce an idea in one place and then find find opportunities to to braid it back into whatever you're talking about sometime later yeah, I mean that's that's what it is, and and we talked about it, you know, two years ago when we had a conversation about about the 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 books that we both put out, the the idea of there being through lines, you know, um, mm-hmm. things that kind of continue, and I think um, that it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I guess it was one of your students at at Winward who who were talking about who brought up this idea. Isn't it interesting that that you know that there are things that that you're reading the book and it's it's not just well, here's one poem, and here's the next poem, and here's the next one. You know, it's things keep coming up that make the whole piece a cohesive, uh, a cohesive piece. You know, and I think um, maybe when reading that book or another previous book, there was a reviewer, G. Murray Thomas, who we both know from from L.A. Poetry, who who commented in his review of of one of my, my books that that the, it, it's kind of like you know you can look at the poems individually, but really. It, it it's it's one long love poem to my wife, you know, which was certainly relevant to uh, to mm-hmm. the honeymoon book. Uh, but but there but there is you know it's it's not just a book of 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 standalone poems. It's not so, a selected works. It's really about the experience of of being on this trip from beginning to end. And certain things keep coming up and and deserve to be referred to uh, or reincorporated, as it were, uh, when they do. You have um. Uh, if there are through lines, I think the the pedestrian observation about your work would be your use of, your use of humor. Uh, that there is a playfulness that uh, runs through the book, but I I um I don't think of you as a, a humorist. Uh, I don't necessarily think of you first and foremost as a funny poet, um, and maybe it's. You know, maybe that's something you would you would like, but I it's not the uh, you know, and I'm overthinking things. But I I'm I'm intrigued by the way uh, humor appears in your work, particularly because of my experiences of of seeing poems where you will introduce the absurd and or or seem to, and then go to some very interesting and quiet places with it. There's a couple of poems I'd like you to read for us now, and uh, I was wondering if you would uh, jump ahead way into the book to page 154 uh, and take us to the Rappahannock River there. Uh, there's a couple of poems that I want you to share. This is the first of, of a couple. Would you Would you do that? Would you take us to page 154? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, just on on what you said though before I read this poem, I you know, I I'm not um I'm certainly not uh ashamed of of the idea of being a a humorous poet. I you know, a lot of people no, no, you know, 
a lot of people look look you know refer to me as that. I get introduced that way all the time, and and uh, you know if people aren't laughing at least occasionally in my work, then I'm, then, then something's not not right. But there is this other thing that people have have been telling me since I've started writing that that there's yeah there's the humor in it, but then there's this other thing that's going on you know below the surface that's uh, that gets to. Um, whether it's the humanity of the experience, or you know, a deeper observation, or or, or something of that nature. But um, uh, so here you go. This is called "On the Banks of the Rappahannock River." On the boyhood property of George Washington, an electric guide tells us everything. The sun burns my neck. The grass wets my toes. You can imagine a young boy throwing a silver dollar-sized rock across. We are excited to do the same. They don't tell you, though. You have to bring your own rock. The strength of a nation is forged on a rock thrown across a river. See, I think one of the things that's uh, interesting to me about uh, this talent of yours, and I guess, and it's something that humor makes possible, is that you will sometimes introduce an idea that seems absurd uh, and I discover that it isn't so much that you're you're just sharing something with me so that I will laugh at it, but that it's a very necessary step to getting us to a place where anything is possible that the kind of absurdities the, the kind of incongruities that you will hold up uh, the provocations that you notice on a public sign or in an overheard conversation that that uh, that that uh, that you'll share in the course of a poem are quite often things where it seems the very nature of reality has been changed or suspended, uh, and rather than just end things on uh, the absurd, however, they're almost like. Um, they're almost like a, a flaw or, or, or a gap in a picture of the world. And in the next move, you're actually getting your hand in there and opening it up wider so that we can have a kind of metaphoric understanding of things. And perhaps uh, what I'm talking about will get a little clearer in the next poem that I'd like you to share. I was wondering if you would backpedal to page 68 uh, to uh, uh, a poem of, of Summer. Uh, and what we might uh, regard as a comparatively meditative poem. Can you take us to that poem uh, about the 4th on page 68? Yeah, this is called The 4th of July. I'm sitting on the lawn beneath the Washington Monument, pulling leaves of American grass out of the ground. I'd like to think it was Benjamin Franklin who invented photosynthesis. But despite the freedoms afforded me after the efforts of the general, this is not the case. No one will tell you the best place to see the fireworks, or they will all tell you something different. We trust our choice was good by the thousands of human evidences who surround us. Either that or we are all wrong. I'm going to trust my gut on this. And come ten after nine, the sky will explode in front of our very eyes. I, th- I think that's a I think that's a beautiful and and devastating poem, <laughs> and also um, 
Thank you. Uh, and also uh, a wonderfully uh, American uh, poem. And I know I, I seem to be harping on this uh, this idea of, uh, of 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 American poetry, but America is is very much a figure in this book. And you're uh, uh, you talk about it from book to book. I mean, if you're traveling to another country and telling us about it, then you will talk about it from the standpoint of being an American in that place, and that identity seems very specifically to come up in this particular book. You're taking us to sites uh, uh, significant to uh, to American history and the, and the birth of uh, of the nation, um, and uh, in particular uh, the sections piece at uh, Mount Vernon on page uh, 123 of the book. Uh, perhaps uh, perhaps you'd take us to actually page 122. Sorry. Uh, would you take us uh, to Mount Vernon for a moment, and then, uh, and then perhaps we can uh, we can open out some of the some of the other themes I want to touch upon. Sure. So Mount Vernon, of course, is is uh, George Washington's estate, and uh, you know, um, I you know it's just, it's so cool being in these places. I I I don't know how to say it in in any way, but the, this really <laughs> simple way. I love being where stuff happened. You know. Uh, where people did their things, and um, you can learn about George Washington all you want, and 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 know what an important figure is. But you know, it's a whole different thing to be at his house, you know, and learn his story from the exact place where he 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 lived, you know, with his wife and his his plantation and his slaves and 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 all that. So um, here you go at Mount Vernon. One. The outside bathroom was called the necessary. I know there have been a lot of bathroom references so far, but that just seemed interesting. Two, Washington was sent the key to the Bastille after it was destroyed. It has been hanging on the wall here since 1789. We're not allowed to take pictures inside the mansion, so I will describe it for you. It's a really big key. Three, the meet Lady Washington room is closed, which is too bad because I wanted to sit on her lap and tell her what I wanted for Hanukkah. Four, everything you see here shows you a picture of George Washington, the general, the president, the great man. Then you learn he owned upwards of 300 slaves who worked here. His last will and testament freed them upon his death in 1799, when he was done with them. Five, whenever Addie points at some object or tree stump and says, Can I sit on this? Disaster will surely follow. Six, we're waiting for the tour guide at George Washington's gristmill and distillery, and Addie asks if I want to pretend to be the guide and get things going. Of course I do, so in my tour guide voice, I ask the assembled crowd of Addie and the tree, who knows what grist is? No audible answer comes, but I continue. That's right. Addie interrupts me to point out one of my shirt buttons is undone, and my fly is halfway down. This ends the tour. Seven. 
<laughs> I learned everything there is to know about George Washington today, except what was in the letters that Martha burned. Outstanding, particularly that uh, that closing image. Thank you for that. There's um, one of the uh, characters that shows up in this book, and I think is relevant at this point, is uh, Edgar Allan Poe. You uh, you go to Massachusetts, and uh, in a manner of speaking, you have several encounters with Poe. Poe uh, had an essay uh, published uh, posthumously. Uh, called The Poetic Principle that came out in uh, 1850. And he makes uh, some statements about poetry, uh, about what it means to him, what he what he likes about certain kinds of poetry, what he wants for its future. But right at the beginning of the essay, there is this really bold statement where he says that, uh, that there really is no such thing as a long poem, that after a poem gets to a certain length, it ceases to be a poem that part of the experience of a poem is its brevity. Part of what uh, characterizes it is that it is uh, a fairly small moment of excitement, he says. Uh, He refers to uh, short poems as minor poems, and that that, uh, even Paradise Lost, he says, can't really be regarded as one big poem. Uh, there's no possible way to sustain the necessary excitement that would make it one long poem, that it is actually a series of minor poems, a series of small excitements punctuated by depression and uh, these slow moments where where it has stopped being a poem and it has just become this longer experience. Uh, you, uh, you know, I said, you have, uh, you have poems that go two or three pages, but I can't but I, there are very few that I've come across in my experience of your work where a poem that goes for two or three pages is not a poem in stages. For the most part, I feel as though you have uh, you have a kind of instinct for just how long the experience should be. It's usually a very short experience. And if you have a long poem on a subject, you're still doing it in, in spells, as evidenced by, uh, by the poem you just read and also the... Uh, the piece about the Crayola factory. Can you talk at all about uh, brevity and uh, your, you know, and and uh, perhaps its its place and and how you regard a poem? Well, there's a lot of. Uh, I was trying to think of a funny thing to say that that would be like two words long that would answer your question, uh, but I thank you. I couldn't manage it, but you know, there's there's a lot of. I, I think poetry is really about the economy of language. You know, it's about saying as much as you can in, in as few words as possible. I think um, Lincoln taps into the idea in the quote that I have at the beginning of the book, where he says he can compress the most words into the smallest ideas better than any man I ever met. Um, Derek Brown, uh, who uh, who's the 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 captain of Right Bloody Press that you have a book on, uh, is you know. It, published in a in an essay about about submitting work to other places you know why not start out with a short poem um and so it just seems to me there's this sensibility that abounds that 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 shorter is better and i, I think we have the tendency to to write on too long you know and and um in particular when a lot of these poems that are only a couple of lines long are really just about a single observation 
you know, um, whether it's uh, something funny that I perceived or something that I hoped or thought was funny. You know, if I'm really just trying to get to that one line, how much do I really need to write to get to that one line? You know, that mm-hmm. one image, that one concept. Um, and in pieces like the the Crayola Factory piece, you know, all of those are essentially the, the same thing, except except combined. You know, you know, I, I decided to number them and put them under one title uh, because they all happened at the same place, and and thus you know had had something to do with each other, you know. So um, I that tends, you know, since I'm someone who a lot of my work tends to be observational, um, you know, ob- observations are really just sometimes just a single line, you know, so that's why they, mm-hmm. they come out like that. So the longer pieces, even if, if they're not as obviously, uh, you know, a single line observation or something broken up into uh, – into stages are, are really just the the observations as as they as they as they came out. Uh, case in point, the uh, the title poem of the collection, the Gettysburg Undress, on page forty three. Would you take us uh, through that? Sure. It is so hot in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. All we want to do is deliver the Gettysburg Undress. Well yeah, I, all I really wanted to do was was use the phrase the Gettysburg undress because I thought it was funny, you know. So I mean, I didn't really need you know uh, you know a whole page of poetry to to communicate. That that the, poem is actually that that poem at uh, at at three and a half lines might still be too long. Like maybe you could have, <laughs> you could have possibly done this in and a half. That shoot over to page ninety where you do something. Uh, like nobody else, and that is the poem in which the title is longer than the piece. Sure. Uh, the title is It's Sheep Month at the Cheese Shop on F Street. Oddly, this has nothing to do with the cheese. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Okay, the... Um... The, uh, there's there's a couple of others here. Uh, I'm going over to uh, a haiku written for me on page 187. Sure. Um, haiku for Brendan Constantine. Every time I sneeze, I think about how much you would enjoy it. See that's uh, well. Thank you for that. I just wanted that read over the air, and also um... <laughs> I should give. You know, I, people might be. You know, sometimes we hang out, and I, I can't think of a single time that we've been in a place. There's more to this sentence. Um, <laughs> where <laughs> I can't think of a single time where we've been in a place where someone has sneezed that you haven't, that it hasn't basically stopped the world for you. <laughs> And that you have I, just... I find sneezing to be hilarious and I'm I'm amazed that it is not uh a greater social equalizer. It seems that it would be that it has the potential to put everybody, rich or poor, uh you know, famous or obscure, uh uh on the same sort of page. 
you know, that uh, because no matter what you think of yourself, no matter how important uh, you are, no matter how curated your life, at some point your body just insists that you go <laughs> and make, you know, a ridiculous noise. And, and all efforts to hide a sneeze only make it more conspicuous and ridiculous to behold. And, uh, you know, so that when somebody is really suppressing one, they make an even weirder noise and they can, you know, and I'm just, I don't know. They just, they absolutely amaze me. Um, the last a super short poem for now, I, I was wondering if you'd go to page 44. Sure. This is called Out of Time. A man dressed in Civil War era clothing holds up a camcorder. The anachronism is hurting me. Now there's um there's a school of thought that uh, says that uh, there are certain kinds of poetry that have always been intended to be non-metaphoric that that going that 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 true haiku for instance is not necessarily best appreciated by trying to infer from it some great metaphor that when the frog jumps into the pond and the rings of water emanate from that place where uh, where it is sunk, that uh, these are not uh, a symbol for anything. This is not a statement about consequence, that the poet really did just want you to inhabit that moment and have that stillness. Uh, I find that uh, this seems to you know, also be part of what's going on in uh, in your smaller pieces. A couple of times during the course of this interview, you've said, well, I just wanted to have an excuse to say this uh, this funny thing. But I feel as though it's just, uh, just a little more complex than that, uh, uh, but still as simple in that, that I feel as though we're being invited to just sort of stand where you're standing for a moment, uh, and uh and and occupy uh, uh i don't know the same strip, the same piece of sidewalk uh the same uh, the same breath of air and that that's that that's all it needs uh, to be uh a poem uh am i am i am i anywhere near your aesthetic here is this the I mean, is this part of what's well, going yeah, on? Yeah, I think it, I. I mean, I it, certainly believe that that's all that needs to 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 be to be a poem. I don't. I don't you know, I think, um, and I and I certainly hope that uh, whether or not it's it's funny that that it does bring people to that moment. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think part of what I try to do in poetry. You know, we there's a, one of the things. If I ever teach a workshop or or. Or when I think about what I'm doing when I'm writing poetry, I try to not use adjectives. You know, I think I try not to explain things too much. I think mm-hmm. um, if I'm saying things that are telling people how to think or 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 experience what's happening, then then I'm not doing it right. So if I can bring people just to that moment with with just the observation uh, and and let it stand for itself, then then I'm doing a better job. Uh, both for the poem and both for the you know the experience of the person reading it and and you know accomplishing what I'm mm-hmm. trying to accomplish. Well, on the same page as uh, the last poem you read, and very much a part of the Gettysburg experience, is this curious little piece that occurs on page 45, where you take us to Gettysburg, and 
you find that it's impossible to sort of pin down a very precise location. Uh, can you take us uh, through the poem on page 45? Sure, this is called Where Did He Say What He Said? There is no marker at the exact spot where Lincoln gave his address. One of the park rangers will tell you where it is. The other will just tell you in a disappointed fashion, if you don't want to go on the tour, that's the trick. You'd think one of the most famous speeches in history, they'd put up a sign or something. This is uh, one of several points uh, in the book where you try to get us to the exact location of an important uh, piece of history. Uh, and we find that um, that there is that there is no there there that we're not uh, that we're not uh, that we we can't actually go to that uh, particular spot. Later on, you tell us about a slave market or the location of a slave market, but uh, there is no sign uh, noting the the exact spot of the market. What there is, in fact, is a parking lot. And uh, uh, that's uh, that's one of several moments in the book that I find, uh, you know, I mean, now after having talked to you about some of this, that 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 are perhaps uh, inadvertently tragic, um, uh, and yet I I find it hard to believe that there's anything inadvertent going on in this book. We're uh, we're coming to the end of our time here, but I'd like to I'd like to to get a few words from you, if possible, about the role of sadness in this book. Um, do you, is it something that you, is it something, do you, do re, I mean, do you even consider this a book that contains any lamentations? Because I do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, again, like, overall the book is about this experience and everything that happened and every 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 observation every humorous thing and everything that wasn't funny and you know throughout on this particular trip that the book takes you through we're going through a lot of places uh that that had to do with the civil war and of course the main issue with the civil war was slavery so you know when we were in Richmond Virginia which was a uh you know the capital of the southern states uh, during uh, during the Civil War, um, there are many many places that you know. There's there's a freedom trail. There's a slave trail there, just like in 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 uh, in Boston, where you can you can go to different sites on the freedom trail. They they have uh, I forget if they call it the 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 freedom Richmond Freedom Trail, or the Richmond Slave Trail, but you know it's all these different sites that have to do with with uh, with slavery. And in in one particular spot. Uh, in downtown Richmond, there's a place where, you know, there used to be a slave auction, and there's a, sure enough, there's a, it's along the the trail that you that you walk along, not not like a trail like as in out in the wilderness, but you know, in all these these spots that you that they take you to in in the city, um, and and there's no, you know, there's no evidence that there was a, a slave market there. There's just the plaque. This is where it was, and all that there is there now is a parking lot, and so. Um, on one hand, it's particularly sad that that there's nothing, you know, uh, there's no more of a memorial. There's no more, um, no more going on in that spot that can help uh, you you know what happened there than than the plaque. On the other hand, I was awfully glad that there still isn't a slave market there. 
you know. Okay. So there's there's stuff like that. I I think a little bit when we when I mentioned um at Mount Vernon, you know, Washington owned slaves and his slave quarters are there uh that that you can go into and and see what was there and see things that they discovered there and and there's a guy who really struggled with with slavery uh, and 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 ultimately thought that it was wrong uh but but you know came to that conclusion you know at a point in his life when when you know he couldn't really make a political issue out of it because there were bigger things going on in terms of making the country you know an independent nation and and such so you know on one hand he freed the slaves in his in his will but on on the other hand he didn't free the slaves until he died you know so there's there's stuff like that in particular on that topic that did that show up in this particular mm-hmm. book there uh, i we're uh, we're coming uh to the end of our time we've actually reached it but i still want to uh i still want to engage you if i can i was wondering if you would uh read us the two last poems in the book pages uh 206 and 207 sure um <clears throat> First one is called Still Life with Four-Year-Old on Tarmac. We spend days on the Chicago tarmac. We think the pilot is trying to drive to Los Angeles. The plane still has that (laughs) new plane smell. A woman from an old country walks the aisle towards the bathroom. This is against all the laws, but where she comes from, this is her way. Another woman operates electronic devices during the forbidden hour. A fire alarm in the control tower has caused all these delays, and the civilians on our plane are considering seceding from the Union. A four-year-old sleeps between our seated legs. This will make it awkward to watch the movie. We may never see our luggage again. And the last and the last poem in the book, uh, really a tip to anyone who's seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, is called Are You Still Reading? The book is over now. You should go home. Thank you so much for that. Uh, wow, it's uh, it's fascinating to me. I uh, I uh, have these notes for. Uh, um, questions and uh, topics that I wanted to bring up and uh, thinking that we'd have plenty of time that I would shoot through all of these things, uh, you know, and still find myself uh, out of uh, things to talk about and uh, 40 minutes of, of dead silence uh, waiting for us. But we've actually managed to uh, to reach our time. Um, but uh, as I understand it also, about 15 minutes into the show, we stopped broadcasting, and uh, folks weren't able to uh, to listen in the entire time. Uh, I've been getting uh, some little uh, notes here on my iPad during the interview. Folks telling me that the that they couldn't log on. Um, I I guess it would be the perfect irony to to uh, to ask you here: How can people log on? A question that. <laughs> that it really has no purpose because if anybody hears me ask it at this point, uh, they'll have already answered the question. Yeah, it's it's true, uh, and and I'll go ahead and answer. Go ahead, it. answer it. Go <laughs> for, ahead. 
for those folks who've already discovered the the, sh- the entire show of course uh is is still recording uh even though the the it, it stopped broadcasting after 15 minutes and as everyone is now already aware uh you can listen to it in the archive at any time and thank you for listening to the entire show to discover that well we uh well we have an, uh, now since this uh, since this is not going to go to the archive does it go Directly to the archive, here's something that anybody listening right now might want to know the answer to. Uh, does a program like this uh, get edited before it gets archived, or or is the show they're listening to the complete unedited version, as though you would actually need any confirmation of that? Yes, no, This uh, 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 there's been nothing edited out, including our mutual nudity. But will there, will there be? No. Okay, so when they hear the show, this is... I mean, clearly, I mean, by the time you've gotten to this point of the show, it'll be clear, you know, no one in their right mind would edit a show this way. But I, I'm curious. Uh, uh, I just, you know, it's one of those things that you might wonder about. Rick Lippert, thank you so much for taking us through your work. Uh, and to everybody that did listen to the show, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We hope that we uh, that uh, we were able to, uh, to, to entertain and inform. And uh, we hope that you'll continue to support uh, Blog Talk Radio and uh, poetry in your time and place. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks. I can I just say I um thank you so much no, for No, for, for... no, you can't you can't say any of that. <laughs> Darn it. Um I'm going to anyway. I just want to say thank you for spending spending the hour with me today, Brendan. It's always cool to talk with you and I really uh, uh, you know, am honored and appreciative of the fact that you would you would take the time to delve so much into the book to be able to have this conversation. I hope people pick it up. It's out on this new press, Rothko Press. They're doing some really interesting things, um, and uh, it's available on Amazon and on my website and and all of that. And and um, thank you so much. I think it's time to bring the music up. There's no end of show music. <clears throat> oh, really? I guess I could play the intro music again if you think that would comfort people. Well, let's play the intro music again. This way, uh, otherwise, okay. listeners uh, will have no idea what to do. Yeah. This is nice. You're listening to KLSDFM. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.